week. Uh, the word of the week this morning is missed. The word of the week this morning is missed. And uh, since, since Tom Ricks has picked on so many people in the congregation, I'm going to pick Tom to actually count the words. So this is a game not for adults. It's just for kids, unless you want to go back and pick on Tom, which I highly encourage. Uh, but kids, count the number of times that the word missed is used in the sermon. Then meet Tom and our mascot, Jacques Lacroix, back there behind the soundboard uh, for a treat afterwards, uh, if you have the correct answer. And even if you have the incorrect answer, you'll probably get something anyway. <laughs> Tom probably won't have the right answer, so. <laughs> this is the great thing about when Tom takes a break, because he has to sit out there. I'm sitting there looking at him, and I just get to, you know, say anything I want to about him. All right, well, while Tom is gone, Tom is taking four weeks uh, out of the pulpit, and uh, I'm going to take us on a short excursus through uh, Ecclesiastes, away from Genesis and into uh, Ecclesiastes, which uh, is a fascinating uh, but difficult little book that I'm really beginning to love more and more. And in it, King Solomon, so if you think about Ecclesiastes, it's right in the center of your Bible, right after Proverbs. King Solomon is the author. And what he does is walk through basically every area of our life, every area of our culture, of our world, and kind of talk about all the things as a, as a, as a human race, as a people, as a culture that we chase. He walks through, and I see people are laughing at this, and I forgot that was coming up. Uh, you might know more, but you'll, you'll figure out more about that in a little bit. I won't even make a comment. Um, but the idea of Solomon is that we, all of us are in, as a culture, we're in a race and we're in a chase. We're chasing after things. We're chasing after a paycheck, chasing after money, chasing after wealth, chasing after power, chasing after women, chasing after relationship, chasing after something in the world, security, ease, comfort, immortality. And what Solomon is going to show us is that in the end, all, those, all that chasing, all that striving is, in a sense, futile. He says, even if we get everything we ever wanted, all of our dreams fulfilled, it will be, in the words of you too, we will still, we will say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, what he says is that any chase in the world outside of God is like a vapor. It's like a mist. In fact, that's a word he uses again and again and again in Ecclesiastes, 38 times, he opens it says, vanity of vanities, or your, your translation might say meaningless and meaningless. The word actually there is vapor, it's mist. I, I brought a little demonstration of this so you can see it because I think you'll see it really well in the light. But he's basically saying life, a, a chase is like a mist. You see how that was there for just a moment and then gone. It's fleeting, it's ephemeral, it's, it's, it's wispy, it, it, it has no substance to it. It's there and then it, and it falls down. I think the kid, even the kids can see that demonstration and what Solomon is saying is that a chase after anything in the world that takes no account of God is like that mist. It's there for a moment. You experience it for a moment, but then it's gone. So we're going to look over four weeks at the four things that we as people, we as a culture chase. And uh, this week we're going to look at pleasure, the search for, the quest for pleasure in our world. So if you would read with me uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It'll be on the, it's in the bulletin, it'll be on the uh, screen here as well. This is Solomon speaking. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. 
But behold, this was also vanity. Again, that word is vapor, mist, or breath. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made great gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herd and flocks, more than anyone else who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women, and many concubines, the delight of children and man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, all was vapor, all was a mist. Always a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. We bow before it. We pray that we might honor it. We pray that it would sink itself into our hearts, into the fiber of our being, or that you would enliven us with joy and delight and pleasure in you, that we would see this morning where true joy and true pleasure comes from. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel empty inside. I feel completely empty inside. Those were the words of one of my best friends from high school. I had, there was a group of us in high school, and we continued to kind of hang out a little bit when we could after high school was over, even after college. And uh, one time we got together and, 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 and three of these guys, you have to understand, they're, they're not only non-Christian, they're anti-Christian. And uh, so the four of us always had a great time just kind of bantering back and forth. You know, they would tease me about uh, my faith in Christ, and we would have all these great intellectual discussions. And it, it was, we had a lot of fun together, and, and we teased each other, but it was all in good fun. Uh, but I also tried to convey to them some seriousness of what I, what I believed. And uh, they would just say, you know, you're too serious. You got to take life. You got to get what you can get when you can get it. You know, this is all there is. You got to have all the fun you can have now because this is all there's ever going to be. And uh, those kinds of conversations went back and forth on and on um, for a long time. And uh, this one particular occasion, we were having that same kind of conversation and it was going kind of nowhere as usual until I asked this question. I said to my friend, so, how's that working out for you? And I didn't say it with arrogance. I didn't say it with, um, I, I really wanted to know from his heart, how's that working out for you? And this was a guy who was, uh, he's a great guy. He's a lot of fun to be around. Um, you would enjoy talking to him. You know, he's the kind of guy that gets invited to all the parties and, um, you know, gets all the girls and all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when, when I asked him that, I said, how's it, how's it going for us? I said, when, I said, after, after the night, 
where you, you've, you've gone to the best party and, you, and you've drank the best liquor and you've had the best drugs and, and you've gone home with the best girl. When you leave that next morning, how do you, well, how, how do you feel? And his answer, though, it shouldn't have been surprising, was, he said, I feel completely empty inside. After it's all gone, it feels completely empty. It feels like this mist. So he, he, he described perfectly what Solomon was talking about. It was fun for that moment, but, but the mist just disappeared. It's fleeting. I can't, I can't get it back. I could taste it for a moment. But now it's gone. And he admitted that life for him really was like a vapor. It was really like a mist. So I ask us this morning, when you've had it all, when you've actually attained it all, will it be enough? Will it actually be enough? And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see that what Solomon teaches us is that there is actually a problem with pleasure. There's the promise of pleasure, and then there's a place for pleasure. That's the kind of the three things he's going to show us, and that's kind of, you know, showing my hand, that's the outline. But first I want to say there's a problem with pleasure, and this is completely not intuitive. I realize that. I realize nobody says this. Look, I'm a pastor. I meet with people all the time, and I, and I say to them, how are you doing? How is life going? No one has ever said to me, you know, just too much pleasure in my life. I, if, life would be going so well for me if I just cut the pleasure out, you know. If, um, you know, the world, I could set the world right if there was just a little less pleasure and fun in the world. You know, that, people just don't say that. So I realized when I said there's a problem with pleasure that it's not actually in, intuitive at all, but I believe it is. I want to tell you why. And of course, a lot of you right now are sitting here going, oh gosh, here we go. This is another pastor, another Christian going, listen, here's what God's most concerned about, that you not have any fun in life. That's not what I'm going to say at all. Uh, a lot of you, you know, you, you've heard Christians before, you, you despise Christians you, uh, who say this because they have this kind of view that, you know, you're, you, you see Christianity, your definition of Christianity is this kind of morbid disturbance and highly anxious fear that somebody somewhere just might be having a good time. And, and that's not my fear at all. I don't think that's Solomon's fear. Um, that's not what I'm going to say. I'm actually going to say that your pursuit of pleasure is probably too weak and not too strong. So why do I say there's a problem with pleasure? Why would I say there's a problem with pleasure? Well, here's why. Solomon's going to show us. But, but one of the main reasons is that because pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, the quest after it, the journey for it, will require more and more from you, and it will give you less and less. It will require more and more from you, and now it'll actually give you less and less. Look at what Solomon does. He, he doesn't just stick his toe in pleasure. If you listen to what I read, he jumps wholeheartedly. He gives him in his entire self to the venture. If you look at chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search. You look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I set in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. In other words, I'm giving myself completely and wholly to pleasure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into it in every aspect I can. And then he gives us a little description of it. He walks through verses 3 through 9. I think they'll be uh, coming up on, on, the, on the screen, verses 3 to 9. He says, uh, give, he gives us kind of the, the outline of his, of his course. He says, I search with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So there he goes. He starts with alcohol, starts with good 
good wine, good drink. He has the best wine that, that, that the world has to offer. Verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, I, had a, I have a sweet pad. And then he doesn't say just house. He says houses. So, I, you know, I have several houses. I have several on the coast. I have some in the mountains. You know, I have vacation houses galore. I have all the vacation spots that you can imagine. Uh, verse 5, he says, I, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. In other words, all the best food that you can imagine, all the greatest variety of food, your favorite foods brought to you, delicacies, day in, day out. He had it all planted right outside his house so he could get it anytime he wanted. He says in verse 6, I made myself pools to water the forest of growing trees. In other words, I've got this beauty of creation right outside my door. I walk through great forests, the mountains, the ocean. I've got lakes and pools and streams. It is just gorgeous to live where I live. He says, I bought male and female slaves, and slaves were born in my house. In other words, I've got people everywhere. Hey, I, I want a sandwich. You get me a sandwich. I want a personal shopper. You go get me this. I want somebody to decorate my house. I've got you to do this. I want someone to uh, empty the trash, whatever. I've got servants that do all that. Somebody go get me some, some of that food that I talked about before. I've got it all. He continues on. I gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So he got all the kind of the money that he could imagine that he could kind of even keep and store. And then he says, I got singers, both men and women. In other words, all the best entertainment than you can imagine. So like at Solomon's house, it was kind of like a, a show on the Vegas Strip every night. You know, there was always entertainment, the best comedians, the best uh, singers, the best dancers, the best art artists, the best musicians. Everybody was there. And then he says, I got many concubines. In other words, I got all the women that I wanted. And so there's Solomon. He's got everything he's wa he, he wants. And, 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 and what did I say there? I said, the journey for pleasure for pleasure's sake will require more and more of you and give you less and less. And you see what he's saying there? He said, look, I tried wine and the wine was good, but then I needed a little bit more. I had to ratchet it up a little, a little higher. And I tried you know, having some nice houses. And it was nice to have a nice house and beautiful things. I try ratchet. I needed better food. I needed more, more money. I needed more women. I needed you, ratchet it up again and again and again. It, it, it required more and more of him, but it was giving him less and less. He was applying himself to it again and again. We get the picture that it doesn't work. And what does he say in the end? In the end, this too was vanity. This too was vapor. This too was mist. This too, it felt so good for just a moment, but like the mist, it evaporated before my eyes, before I could actually hold on to it, before I could grab a hold of it. Now, this is important. This is important to us in our world, our society, because never before have we lived, never before has there been a culture or a society that has so devoted itself to pleasure and leisure and entertainment as ours has. Ne never has more energy in gone into, in, in a culture, never has more energy gone into entertainment and sex and leisure and fun and excitement than currently happens uh, in our culture. There, there's more, more sports than ever uh, before in history, more video games than ever before in history, more TV channels than ever before in history, more, more movies, more books, more um, places to go and travel and see, uh, vacation destinations, whatever. There's more of it now, and it's more accessible now than it ever has been in the history of the world. 
we're giving ourselves to it more and more. And so, what do we? What what should we expect? Now, I would expect. Listen, if I said, listen, I'm giving myself, I'm applying myself to studying for an exam. I'm going to give myself this exam. What do you expect? You expect to see me studying for it and then passing the exam because I've given myself wholeheartedly to it. So I expect to see a culture that's given itself wholeheartedly to pleasure and leisure, having the best times of their lives, enjoying life, loving life. It's actually the opposite of what we find. We find that Solomon was actually right 3,000 years ago. We give ourselves to it more and more. And it gives us less and less. We have more than ever before, but what do you constantly hear? Where are we? We're going there again for vacation. We got that again for dinner. We're doing that again. I'm bored. What people report and what studies show is that people in the United States right now are very busy, but extremely bored. Very active, but extremely apathetic. Plenty to do, but very little reason to actually do it. In fact, one psychiatrist has said that we're in the country, we're in actually a boredom boom. That 71% of people say their lives are boring. Not just they've experienced boredom, but their lives are boring. And I would say this, nobody is feeling this. this so, so if this missed... This is kind of describing the, the chase, the emptiness. I'll spray it on this side, too, so you guys can see. Um, the void and the emptiness that's rising up in our culture that's described by the words boredom, nobody is feeling that more acutely, more profoundly than our teenagers. I read a book uh, recently. It's called uh, The Price of Privilege. I, I would recommend that for any parent raising a kid in, a, in the suburbs, as, as many of us are, And uh, she says something there that is very provocative, that blew me away, that I think will probably blow you away, um, but that she scientifically proves. She says this, it is more, statistically speaking, it is more dangerous for you and for me to raise our children in the suburbs than in the ghetto. It is more dangerous for you and me to raise our children in the suburbs than in the ghetto. Because, statistically speaking, children in the suburbs suffer greater degrees and percentages of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, unhappiness, relational dysfunction, apathy, and boredom. You know, since the 1950s, we've experienced one of the greatest productions of wealth and and production of pleasure and excitement in the world has ever seen. The teen suicide rate has increased over 400% since that time. No one is feeling it more acutely than our children. 22% of teenage girls in suburbs with involved parents, 22% have not just depression, but clinical depression. This is in a world of pleasure. What we see is that there is there is in our culture an addiction to pleasure. See, Solomon knew about the law of diminishing returns long before psychiatrists ever did. He said, you give yourself to it more and more, and it it takes more and more from you, and it gives you less and less. That's the way every idol is. That's the way every idol functions. it, It requires more and more from you, but it actually will give you less and less satisfaction. So here's the question. Why don't we wake up to the fact that there's a problem? Why don't we wake up to the fact that there's a problem? 
look, look at what Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So in other words, everything I saw that I wanted, I took it. I had it. Now, most of us in the room cannot say, in fact, I don't know there's anybody in the room that can say that. Solomon was a king, and he was wealthy beyond all, all, all imagine. You know, even the, the president of the United States cannot say, whatever I wanted, I took, because he's got to deal with, you know, a Congress and, and uh, you know, ta- uh, voters and all that kind of stuff. No, he was a king for life, no checks on his power. He could take anything he wanted, had all the money he wanted. And Solomon says, whatever I saw that I wanted, I got it. See, Solomon went to the end of the road. He went to the end of the road of pleasure. Most of us can never get there. There's all these things that our eyes desire that we actually, because we don't have enough money or power, we can't actually get them. And so we think the problem is not with pleasure, not with the path. The problem is the fact that we haven't gone down the path far enough. We feel like we haven't actually gotten to the end, and therefore that is the main problem with pleasure is that we actually don't have enough. If we, I asked my friend that said, he said, I feel empty inside. I said, well, don't you realize that you're living, that the way that you're living is producing this? He said, no. I, I what I need to find is a better girl, a better drug, a better party, a be- you know, on down the list. See, he, he, he hadn't gotten to the end of the road yet like Solomon has. Most of us never get to the end of the road, and so we keep thinking if it was just a little more than it would be, we would actually grab hold of that mist that gets so elusive from us. If we could just have more money, more relationships, better relationships, more fun, more drugs, more women, more money, whatever it is, that's how we kind of think about the world. Um, unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave, you probably know that Michael Jackson died about a week and a half ago, and that's kind of been the obsession of the media. They've talked about nothing else, but if, if you don't believe Solomon, read the biographies of the people that, that make it down the road. Think about Michael Jackson. Nobody had more talent, more fame, more, more money than Michael Jackson did. And yet he died as a man addicted, probably addicted to drugs. We don't know that for sure. But depressed, lonely, reclusive, and quite possibly um, addicted to drugs. He had everything, and yet he died in that way. There's 100 people that we could talk about there. And so I'll just ask you the question. The question I would ask us all is, what are, you, what are you living for? What are you living for? Martin Luther King said, unless a man, man has found something to die for, he's not fit to live. In other words, unless you have something that, that you'll go to the mat for, unless you have something that's so powerful that you'll stand up for, some truth that's so amazing and profound and central to your life that you would die for it, you're, you're already dead. Your life, your life is like that mist, like that vapor that just fades away. It's, it doesn't have substance. It doesn't have weight. You're just living for the next moment, the next thing, the next pleasure. Now, why do we do this? Because of a couple different reasons. One is that pleasure has a certain siren call to us, doesn't it? has a certain siren call. It, it really, it makes a promise. So we, we looked at the problem of pleasure, but there's a promise that pleasure makes. And that's, that's why we seek it so, so strongly. And the first promise it makes is that it promises to distract us. If you look at the last word in chapter one of Ecclesiastes, the word is sorrow or the word is grief. In other words, he'd already tried one search first. 
and it led him to sorrow and to grief. And so then he, he turned from that chase, from that search, to pleasure. You see what's happened? He was experiencing sorrow, experiencing grief, and the way he dealt with it turned to pleasure. Pleasure was the distraction. Pleasure was the distraction from what was really, what was really hurting him. Now, we all have, we all have, we all suffer in, in, in life. We, we all deal with pain in our lives, some of us more than others. We deal with death, with disease, with broken relationships, with kids that drive us crazy, with parents that drive us crazy, with all kinds of things that we deal with. And uh, the way Solomon dealt with it, and the way that we sometimes like to deal with it is to distract ourselves, to numb ourselves. You know, what does a doctor do when he encounters pain in a patient? What does a dentist do when he encounters pain in a patient? Gets the needle out and shoots the Novocaine in, right? I have a long, sordid history with dentists, and uh, I, I literally cannot stand going to the dentist because I have had literally more dental work done. I guarantee you, come up and we'll challenge you after, but I've had more dental work done than any person in this room, I can almost guarantee you. Um, and at some point, the Novocaine just stopped working. And so now when I go to the dentist to get a cavity filled or something, it's like, you know, strap my arms on with leather straps and give me a stick to bite down on because that is like the best thing I'm going to get because the Novocaine doesn't really work anymore. And uh, what, what we see here in the world and what we see Solomon doing is that he turned to pleasure to distract himself, to numb himself. He used pleasure as that injection of Novocaine into his heart. And after time and time and time again, it deadened his soul, it deadened his nerves in such a way that he was then emaciated. Instead of numbing him, he, it actually destroyed him. It didn't, it didn't work anymore. And that's, uh, that's what happens to us. We shoot the, the, the Novocaine of pleasure into our lives to try to distract us from what's really going on, from the real pain in our world. And it ends up emaciating us. And so what starts off as a nice glass of wine after work turns into an obsession and a need for it every day to deal with the stress of work. What starts off as a nice bowl of ice cream turns into uh, binge eating every time that we're lonely or sad. What starts off as purchasing a, a few nice things at the store becomes an obsessive shopping craze to deal with emptiness inside of our own lives. Solomon has been there. I think we've probably all uh, been there. And he says, this too was vanity. This too was vapor. This too was a mist. Because the Novocaine eventually wears off. And what it does is it makes our society just more and more trivial. The pleasure gets more and more trivial. The pleasure gets more and more mist-like. I, I was at the gym yesterday, and at the gym I, I go to, there's, there's two TVs up there, and, and, and one of them is always on ESPN. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting there doing a little workout, and I look up, what's on ESPN today? It is the uh, National Hot Dog Eating Contest. Now, I just thought, oh, they're having a fun little hot dog contest at Coney Island, right? And everybody kind of, no, this is part of the sanctioned U.S. competitive eating team. And, uh, and it's sanctioned by all these bodies and boards and all this stuff. And so they had like 50 people lined up on a stage like this with, I'm talking stacks of hot dogs. It is one of the most disgusting things I have literally ever seen because they dip these hot dogs in glasses of water and then they just down them. The winner of this contest got ate 68 hot dogs, bun and all, in 10 minutes. 
I'm not kidding you. It was the most disgusting and yet incredible thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just like so horrendous you can't look away, you know. It's just you want to, but you keep watching it. They even had this thing called the Chew View. It was like a camera right here. It was, a, see what I'm saying, trivial. It just gets trivial. Um, they, they were showing people eating. While they're eating, it's showing this, this person holds a world title for most shoe fly pie ate in 10 minutes. And, and that's not a joke. 12 pounds of shoe fly pie in eight minutes. 13 pounds of strawberry shortcake in 15 minutes. I mean, they, they had, everybody had like a world title like that. And I said, there were 40,000 people there watching it. And it was televised, world, or at least nationally, by ESPN. This is what pleasure and entertainment has come to. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that's tr- that, that things are getting more trivial, uh, nothing, nothing will. Um, listen, when we use pleasure for distraction, it makes our lives trivial. And it begins to work like a Novocaine, but it ends up deadening our souls, wounding us. Now, um, we need to kind of, I need to kind of move along a little bit. But the second promise that, that pleasure makes is the promise to satisfy. If you look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, come now. Remember I told you it was something before? He says, now I'm going to test with pleasure, right? Because I was testing with something else before. In other words... If you go look and read what he was testing with, he was testing with knowledge and wisdom and intellectual. He said, I'm going to go and look at the world and I can figure out all the answers to the big question. Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What's going on? What is truth? What is right? What is wrong? I'll find out all the answers intellectually. And he does. And what does he say? That too was vanity. There were no answers to the big questions. And so then he turns to pleasure. Now, we may not realize it, but he just summarized the entire history of our country. Just like that. When the words come now, he summarized the entire history of our country, which is we now live in a culture. Tim Keller said this. We now live in a culture and society, the first one ever on earth to where the majority of the cultural leaders now say there are no answers to the big questions. Why am I here? There's no answer. What, what meaning and purpose is there in life? There is none. There's no, no, no real answer. You create it yourself. Uh, what is right? What is wrong? No, no right. Or what is truth? There is no truth. No answers to the, we're the first society. Now, there's been societies built on the wrong, the wrong answers before, the wrong philosophies, the wrong religions maybe, but never, no, no, no answer. This is the first time in cultural history our leaders say there are no answers to the big questions in life. Our scientists, many of our scientists will tell us that our lives are accidents and that we're all headed toward the sun blowing up and burning everybody up. Many of our professors, our university systems, will teach us that there's no such thing anymore as right or wrong or truth or falsehood. And so what can be the response to such a world? Pleasure. If there's no objective meaning in the world, I, I will create it myself. And so what, the, the, the reason there's such a problem with pleasure is because we're not just seeking pleasure, we're seeking meaning. We're seeking significance. We're seeking a life. We're seeking validation. That's why there's such a problem with pleasure in this way. Because we're seeking it not just for pleasure's sake, but for meaning. If you don't believe me, just look at the advertisements. Look at any advertisement on TV. What does it tell you? Buy this car so you will know then that you have arrived. 
Buy this kind of perfume so then people will like you. Buy this kind of beer, drink this kind of beer, and you will know that, <clears throat> that, that, that you're in the in crowd or, or, or whatever it is. They're not just selling pleasure. They're selling meaning for life. They're selling identity. They're selling significance. And that's why this type of pursuit of pleasure actually becomes such a problem. That's why, and that's why always a pursuit of pleasure like that will fail. It will be like this. It will be a mist. It will be here and then gone. You'll taste it for a moment and then it's gone. C.S. Lewis said this. I think this quote's going to be on the screen. <clears throat> he said, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we, they are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, you hear that? If they're mistaken for actual significance, then they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing, they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What Solomon and what C.S. Lewis are saying is that the very fabric of this world has been created in such a way to bring you and me up short. The very way that God has created this world is to bring us to a point of frustration to say, you know what? Pleasure won't provide it. In, you know, intellectual prowess won't provide it. Nothing is going to provide the answers, the meaning, the significance, the worthwhileness, the identity. Nothing is going to provide it. And when we hit that point, that's when we're ready to reach out. When you hit the point where you know you're drowning, that's the point you're ready to call for the lifeguard, right? That's what Solomon's saying. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying, is that we, we, we're getting this picture of it, this mist of it. We can, we, it's the scent of a flower we've never quite smelled. It's the tune of a music that we recognize, but we've never quite heard it. It's the news from this country we've never yet visited. It's, it's, it's out there, but we can't quite get a hold of it. That's what he's saying. And so when we hit that point, then we're ready to reach out. And that's what, that's what God is, is doing here. God has made the world, the fabric of the world, in such a way that once we hit that point, we are meant to, made to, reach out to Him. Because He is the meter of our needs. God is the great need meter. God is the great satisfier. We're made to reach out to Him in that moment. And the reason many of us are not, because we think, what will we have to give up if we reach out? What pleasure are you going to ask me to give up? I'll reach out to God. And I would say, whatever that thing is you're negotiating with, that's your real God. That is your real God. I, you know, I, can, I, I, I could come to God, I could believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be him messing with my money. You know, that's a personal matter. Money's your God then. Because you don't want Jesus to interfere with it. And I can tell you that you, you will have never made a better trade. If you do reach out, out of desperation, you will have never made a better trade because you will trade in the fleeting, small, puny, finite pleasures of the world for infinite, eternal, glorious ones in God. And that's why Solomon kind of takes us lastly and says there is a place of pleasure. Remember I said I'm not condemning pleasure. That's probably what you've heard so far. But look what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. God has made everything beautiful in its time or in its place. God has made everything beautiful in its time or in its thing. 
place. I think most Christians hear a sermon like this and they think, okay, I got it. Pleasure's a problem. What we need to do is extract all the pleasure out of our lives and then we're set. If we just stop having fun in any kind of capacity, and if we make sure that nobody in culture or society has fun, then we've gotten what God really wants. And that is absolutely opposite of what he's saying. No, it's the pursuit of pleasure in the absence of God that is the problem. The pursuit of pleasure in the absence of God. See, Christians, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of pleasure because you know how to use it. It's not for your distraction and it's not for your satisfaction. It is for enjoyment of God's gifts. It is for enjoyment of God himself. You see, God's gifts, are, they're like a, it's like a sharp knife. Every gift of God is like a sharp knife. If you don't know how to use it, you will flay your hand open with it. But if you know how to use it, it has all sorts of great things, great uses that you can have for enjoyment. So far from keeping you from enjoyment, Solomon's trying to teach us how to enjoy. He's saying, yes, and there's five sections in this book that kind of do this. We don't have time to go through them, but he says, go and look. I want you to enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, enjoy your wife, enjoy your relationship. I want you to, if you have wealth, I want you to enjoy those things. That's what he actually says. Not in and of themselves, though. He says they are a mirror. They are an echo. They are a reflection. Whenever you go out and say, this is a beautiful sunset, you don't just go, oh, it was a nice sunset. That was beautiful. I'm glad I enjoyed that. No, you say, that's just a, just a tiny foretaste, just a tiny picture of the greatness of God. That's just a small little scent of the flower we've never yet smelled. That's just this little tune of the music that we've never yet heard. So he's showing us how to enjoy these things. I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm just going to skip that. But, but he basically says there in the quote that it's Satan's intent to twist pleasure because God is the inventor of pleasure. Where, where did variety of foods come from? Where did the beauty of creation come from? Where did marriage come from? Where did sex come from? Not Satan. God created those things. God created them for my enjoyment, for your enjoyment, for our pleasure, but not as pleasure in and of themselves, but to receive them as a gift from him and then say, my goodness, he is this, this little picture says he's this glorious. What must he really be like? How great must he really be? And for us to fall in worship and enjoy God in that capacity. If your enjoyment of pleasure leads you away from God, then you've gotten it wrong. Enjoyment of pleasure leads us to God who invented pleasure. The world needs Christians who know how to enjoy God's gifts without idolizing them. The world needs Christians who know how to enjoy the world's gifts without idolizing them. Listen, the... The extent to which you believe coming to God and knowing God and coming to, coming to Christ, the extent to which you believe that coming to God means giving up pleasure and joy is the extent to which you have not yet understood God. The extent to which you believe coming to God means giving up all your pleasure and joy and happiness is the extent to which you have not yet understood God. So I would say to all of us, anti-Christian, non-Christian, new Christian, old Christian, Get to know Jesus. We have a desperate need to get to know Jesus, to hear about him, to talk about him, to read about him, to study about him, to pray to him, to get to know Jesus. If you know the Jesus that is like the big party pooper in the sky, you haven't met the Jesus in the Gospels. He's the guy that went to all the parties. He was at the wedding making the wine, right? Jesus was the one that was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was always with the partying crowd. But the pleasure wasn't in it itself. 
The pleasure was a window to God. What does the gospel say here? If you haven't heard anything else I say in, all, in the whole sermon, just hear this one, one part. The gospel talks about God's pleasure. Remember when Jesus was baptized? What did God say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased, in whom I take great pleasure, great delight. What did God do with that son? God put his son on the cross, on a cross like this, and showed his displeasure to his son. that we deserve so that he could show us his pleasure. So that he could say to you and to me, you are my son, you are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. In you I take great delight. In you I have great pleasure. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. Maybe your mom never said it. Maybe your dad never said it. Maybe your husband or wife never said it. Maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend never said it. I don't know. But if you believe in Jesus, God is saying, all the pleasure I have in my own son, I have it in you. I am pleased in you. So as Christians, we have to learn that the Christian life is not First and foremost, about pleasing the big God in the sky who's really big and angry and going to get us. See, that's what religion says. Religion says God is useful. That's what Tim, Tim Keller says. Religion, religious people say God is useful. Christians believe God is beautiful. Religious people believe God is useful. In other words, gets me free of my guilt, gets me uh, feel good about myself, moral life, upstanding citizen, whatever. Useful. Christians believe God is beautiful. So as Christians, I long for myself and I long for you. I long for a church that knows not just to say, oh, I've messed this up. I messed this up. I got this addiction. I'm addicted to this pleasure. You can't displace pleasure. One, one addiction in your life by just throwing it out. It has to be displaced by a greater pleasure, by something more beautiful. Your eyes can't be turned from this beauty to, a, to, to nothing. It has to be turned. Your head can only be turned by a greater beauty. And that beauty is in Christ in God, in the gospel, that says God took the displeasure that was ours and gave it to his son so that we could have the pleasure that was his son's and give it to us. That's what the gospel says. And that's what true Christianity is. We learn not just to try harder and do better. We learn to gaze, to gaze on the face of Christ, to behold him and to see him in his beauty for all he is. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Learn not just to try harder, but to gaze deeply into the person, the face of Christ. Let's pray.